morning, everyone. Um, I believe at this time the kids and youth are invited to head to their classes. Kids can go out that door, as you can see by the throng, um, and the youth can go out back. Welcome again. It's so good to see all of you. It's so good to be back. Um, I promise you, I thought of you last when I was sitting on the beach all last week. I did. Oh yeah, me miss Pat. I did. I thought of, I thought about I missed y'all. I did. I didn't miss y'all enough to come back early, but I missed y'all. Um, this morning we're going to be continuing this sermon series. We're working through the Book of Malachi, and so we've been talking about this idea that. You know, the, the, the thrust of Malachi is this idea that God calls us to be faithful in body and spirit. Uh, one of the most fascinating things about the passage this week is I read Malachi and studied and prayed and kind of looked for, hey, what's the big theme here? Um, the, the, the genesis of this series title, Being Faithfulness in Body and Spirit, is actually found in this passage, right? And, and so what Malachi is going to talk about is just what does that look like, right? What does it mean to be faithful in body and spirit? Uh, but before we get to that, I think it's important to acknowledge that so far, what Malachi is talking about is, is distinctly the unfaithfulness of God's people. He talked about how they've been unfaithful to even accept God's love, about how they struggled with the idea of even believing that God loved them, not because God stopped loving them, but because they stopped relying on God and started to look at themselves for everything, right? Because their, their spiritual apathy that grew up led to this indifference that led to sin. And we see this unfaithfulness showing up in not just the rejection of God's love, but even in how they worship, not giving God their best. We see it in, in, in their leaders, and we see it in their priests. Now, what, what's interesting is that the, the Malachi just continues. And, and so when we get to the passage this week, He's going to talk about unfaithfulness, especially in light of the covenant of marriage. Now, for Malachi, I think it's important for us to understand that, like, this isn't just like, oh, another thing they did wrong, right? It's not just this random, le- random list that he's putting together. When Malachi sees of unfaithfulness and breaking covenant with God, he sees it in how they worship. He sees it in how they love one another. He sees it in their truth. He sees it in all these different things. And for him, this is just the other one. But I have to pause because the, the heaviness with which I come to you today is because I think we also have to acknowledge that passages like the one we're going to be in this morning has been used as a hammer more than what it actually says. And then we have to sit with that a little bit this morning before we can get in. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes what we do is we pull verses and passages out of context. And we pull them out of context, we get them to say what we want them to say, as opposed to what the passages actually say. Imagine if you wrote me a letter and I just took a paragraph and said, this is all he said to me, all he said to me in the paragraph, this is it. And you're like, but I just wrote you 10 pages. Like, I mean, I'm glad you like that paragraph, you know? But like, I feel like I made other points in the nine and a half pages you're not citing, right? And so I think it's important for us to at least acknowledge that one of the things we tend to do is pull verses out of context, right? And so I think we have to cover this passage with Malachi on marriage and divorce to cover that. Because when we don't, we do some things that are wrong. We make this passage simply about marriage, right? And so some people will quote a passage like this, like, see, this is why God tells you not to be unequally yoked. It's not the thrust of what Malachi is saying to the people. Is that for all of it? Because oftentimes we use that as, as God says not to be equally yoked. We tell people that their marriages aren't good enough. They're not God-honoring or, or, or even like they're wrong, right? And, and I don't know if that's necessarily all that Malachi is saying. I think there's more than that. There's also people who use passages like this and like, see, this is why God told you not to marry interracially, right? But God says there's a different group of people, and there's not a group of people y'all shouldn't come together. This time to prove it. But again, it's not what Malachi is talking about. Is he talking about race? Or is he talking about faithfulness to God and what does that look like? Right? There's some people who then say, well, if it's not about marriage, I'll tell you certainly what this talking about. It's about divorce. It's kind of, yeah. But it's not all that it's saying. What I mean by that is that there's some people who will use passages like this to tether women especially to marriages that aren't honoring to God. To keep women in spaces where they're abused. To keep women in spaces where, you know, keep your husband, submit to him, even though he's not honoring to God and not honoring to you and actually abusing and hurting you. And the irony of that is that, no, 
speak to say that, like, what you're doing to women is wrong. <laughs> like, the irony of the fact is, my guys are specifically is like, you are discarding the women God has blessed you with. You are discarding the marriage God has blessed you with. Stop doing that. And yet we take it and be like, see, that's why you got to stay in the marriage. This is what happens when we untether these practices, right? And, and we make it definitely about what we have to say other than what God is actually saying. So with that in mind, I think it's really helpful for us if we're going to tether this to covenant to actually answer that word, what is covenant? It's one of those Christian words. You grew up in a church, you pray covenant before. Right? You probably went to a school that, that said we're the new covenant or, or covenant Christian school, right? We, we would probably we have this word that we say a lot, but the irony is that a lot of us don't really know what it means. See, I'm just to watch the covenant, but I think it's like a thing. Like God did for us. It's a thing that we have with God, right? I think God covenant, but, but what does it actually mean? And I think going back to this idea of, of uncovering what a covenant means, then you'll see that Malachi is not just simply making a list and checking this one. The Malachi is not just complaining about all the ways that fell short. That Malachi is calling them back to what they had agreed with God and all the ways they were falling short. So what is covenant? Well, the, the, the ancients, the Hebrews, the first people who followed God, will call it Berit right? And for them, there was this idea of, of cutting an agreement. So for them, covenant for the ancients was, was a binding legal agreement and relationship. And that's important for us to understand that because what's happening here isn't just that the priests are unfaithful. It isn't just that the people's worship isn't good. It isn't just that the husbands are unfaithful in our passage. It isn't just that they were falling short. But it was that they had come to an agreement with God that they had for generations walked away from. So this idea of covenant wasn't just, it was binding, it was legal, it was an agreement, it was a relationship. But we have to understand that for the ancients, and especially for cultures around the world, or outside the West, they still operate this way. Right? In our culture, we say handshake agreements, it doesn't really mean much. Right? Like, it's hard to go to court and be like, we made a handshake agreement. And that'll stick. Because we made, but in the rest of the world, that's kind of good enough. Now, in my native country of Liberia, based on the covenant, the handshake agreement that was made generations ago, I can walk in and be like, well, 157 years ago, my great-great-grandpa said, this is my land. And they'll be like, well, okay, you made the covenant. We don't have that here. But the ancients in the world outside of the West, this is how people operated, right? It was a pact, it was a treaty, it was an alliance, it was an oath. You make it with your neighbor, right? So a lot of times when you travel other parts of the world, you come to a boundary line, it's maybe a stone, right? But more than often than not, it's an idea. You know, you ask someone from the non-Western world, like, where does your land end? Well, I think by the tree over there. Kind of maybe, you know? It's just it's there, right? So, so, so for a lot of people, it was, you would make it with your neighbor, your village, kings would make it. Right? Among other kings, it was just like, listen, this is where my land is, this is where your land is, we now neighbor to try to make this thing work, right? But it was also sometimes made between equals. So, for example, we come to the covenant of God, right? God designed that as a, as a coming together between equals. But the other thing about covenant is, is when I say legal binding agreement, I feel like that's for our Western thinking, but we think legal is legit, right? I guess probably, right? But this was a, so that's to us a part kind of agreement. And the idea here was that it wasn't casual. You didn't just enter into it. In fact, the ancients would do something called the seven, right? To make an oath. Now, for some of them, like Abraham, for example, in Genesis, bring seven lands, right? But for some of them, you would utter this word seven times, right? And the thinking was, if I'm agreeing to this seven times during the same I must really need it, right? And, and so it was to, 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 to not only say, hey, I'm making this agreement, but to make an oath. But because there was an oath, and this is kind of what Israel forgot, and what we forget sometimes, that like there were blessings if I was faithful to the covenant, and this curses when I'm unfaithful to the covenant. Now, for some of us, that's hard to grasp and hold. I like to invite us to the mortgage covenant, right? That's the one where you buy the house, you still buy it if you own, but you don't own yet, right? But in the mortgage covenant, the blessing is every month, you get the what? Pay it. Right? And the blessing is you get to keep it until it's paid. You know what the curse of the mortgage covenant is? If you don't pay it and you're not faithful, that's what happens to the house you bought that you already own that you don't really own. You lose it. Right? So that's the idea that when you make this oath, and trust me, if you ever bought a house, I 
the Lord to die for us. That's how he won. I thought I was getting a copper cell thing, but you keep signing it. And I just like, can't we do this once? Like, can't we just do a dance or something? But it's just like, you sign, I, I feel like, sorry, Paul. That's like five minutes. I don't even know what I'm signing anymore. Right? It's just like, yes, it's be dead. Whatever you need, right? But the idea, though, is that when you enter into these agreements, you get them as blessings and curses. You have obligations to the agreement. And I want us to hold that because when I started them out, I reminded you when God says, you know, Israel, if I love you, uh, Esau, if I hate it, God isn't being emotional here. God is saying, I have held up to my end of the bargain. as you. So it's about this idea of, of what is covenant. And to Israel, I think it's also important for us to understand that the covenant was where they believed held God's covenant. God's love was held in covenant. What I mean by that, it wasn't just a reminder of God's covenant. It was a reminder that every time they went to it, they were like, wow, he has been faithful to me. Look at all these obligations he said he would do. He did protect us. He did provide for us. He did bring us to the promised land. He brought us out of slavery. Everything in the covenant they could go back to and be like, wow, God has been good to me. But the other thing I want us to hold on to is that covenants, because they were also past treaties and lands of hope, were conditional, and some are also unconditional. For example, we read in the text this morning, right, about reaping what you sow. There's this conditional aspect. One of the ones that terrifies me is when Jesus himself said, listen, I need you all to forgive. <laughs> Not just because I forgive you, because if you don't forgive, how can you expect our Father in heaven to forgive you? Like, that's a conditional one. Like, most of us, like, think, well, God forgives me. He's <laughs> great, you know? Especially in the past, like, this is when we talk about sin. It's like, God forgives me. That's awesome. But then Jesus says, actually, no, that's conditional in this sense. If you don't forgive, I'm not sure our Father will forgive you. Now, that doesn't take away unconditional covenants like the fact that God loves you. Right? God's always going to love you. God's always going to protect you. God's always going to want to provide heaven for you. But some of these covenants were conditional. And so when you come to Israel and Judah and the people of the Old Testament, you'll see some that are unconditional. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, or Abraham at the time, that's an unconditional covenant. When God makes a, a, a promise to David, that's an unconditional covenant. Abraham gets to be the father of the faith, and we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. David gets to have the Messiah birth from his womb. Right? As we'll talk about, those were unconditional. But the one that happens at Sinai, the one that dominates the entire Old Testament, was a conditional covenant. If Israel wasn't faithful to God, they would lose not just the blessing, but they would actually earn the country. And this isn't something that was wild to the people of Malachi's day because they had lost before. They had been faithful or unfaithful for generations, lost their land, gone, taken over. God had pulled them out of slavery. God had pulled them out of being under the thumb of Assyria and Babylon, and now they're falling back. The last thing about covenant that I think is kind of important, I think it's actually kind of cool, is that there would usually be ceremonies. In the ceremony, you would have representatives. Right? Now, for some of us, we're like, well, what does that mean? I'll tell you what that means. For example, you would have David and Goliath, right? We're familiar with that story, right? David is the representative of not just God, but Israel. And Goliath is the representative of the Philistines. And so part of something would be like, listen, I pick my champion, you pick your champion, whoever wins, that's who wins. Now, for me, I'm just like, what if my champion loses? I don't like this deal, right? Like, like if my champion wins, it's a great deal. But if my champion loses, I'm like, well, listen, we should have fought. Like, why? We don't like that guy, right? But the idea there was that David represented all of Israel in that covenant. Uh, another way you can see it is I, I believe on Tuesday it is, we'll celebrate, or, or, or in general, we'll celebrate 247 years of being America. Nothing makes you feel young that when you're like, we celebrate 247 years. And some people are like, well, our country's been around since like, I don't know, a thousand years. <laughs> you know? And we're working on that. We're almost 25, right? But the thing is, those people who signed the Declaration of Independence, regardless of your thoughts about them, were still your representatives, right? Like they were representatives. Uh, another one that, that we can actually kind of focus on is, is, is in our church, right? And we look at our church probably, we have our staff, but the staff actually works under the church board. The church board is elected by you, the body, and those people on the church board are, guess what? Your representatives. Right? When we have general assembly or our general conference, or we used to call it, or we have regional conferences, we elect again from the body people who 
know what represents Harrisburg better than Christ Church to the greater brethren in Christ. They are your representatives. So we're still using this idea of covenant as they have represented. Why is this important? It's important because when the representatives made the covenant, there was a belief that the seed that lived inside of them, as in the people that would come from them, were all perhaps access to the covenant. So when God talks about Abraham and the nations to come, that's it. When, when David made a covenant with, with Jonathan, for example, that's why he extended to Mephibosheth. And here's a really cool one. When Jesus makes the covenant by dying on the cross for your sin, this is why we say in Christ, right? Like that's covenant language because we were in Christ. And because we are in Christ, when we believe everything that Jesus gave us access to, we now have access to. How do we know this? In covenant, one of the things you would do is you would take off your robes, right? And you would change your robes with one another. And what you were signifying there was literally my identity is now wrapped in you. And your identity is now wrapped in me. What's beautiful about that is that all of us are searching for identity. Who are we? Right? Who am I truly? In covenant, God gets to say, you are with me. And I am with you. So when Jesus or the scriptures has put on the robes of righteousness, it's not because you're good. Because God is. Because God has actually chosen not just to leave heaven and come to earth, but to identify with you. And calls you to identify with him. So you can see in Malachi and other places in the Old Testament why God is upset when people sin. Because suddenly I identify with you, but by sinning, you're profaning my name. You're profaning my table. You're bringing sin into what is holy. You and me are now bound together. My identity in you, your identity in me. Another form of covenant, another aspect of covenant, another blessing of covenant was that you would give your weapons and exchange them with each other. And what that means was that in covenant relationships, you were obligated to protect one another. So when I come to you, I wouldn't say, hey, I got a tech last night. You know what I was going to say? Hey, we got a tech last night. What are we going to do about it? And so that's how you have language in the Bible. We talk about not the spiritual warfare, but the fact that God is on our side. That's why we can rest a little bit and relax a little bit because we don't have to fight the wars on ourselves. We don't have to fight the wars alone. When we get attacked, God gets attacked. That's covenant language, right? The idea here is that God is obligated to protect Israel. And that's why even though they're unfaithful time and time again, we're unfaithful time and time again, God still protects us. Another thing about covenant, and I love this one, was that your possessions also were believed to be shared assets and debt. Well, when Michelle and I got married, one of our dear friends, a sister really, felt the need to, to tell everyone that Shell wasn't married because I'm wealthy. Right? She was just like, if you don't think Hank doesn't value money, it's because Hank doesn't have money. And after I got through it, I walked to the mic and I reminded my sister that my father, our father, owns the cattle on 10,000 dollars. I believe in shared protection, right? You might think I'm poor, but God's rich, so by default, I'm rich too. Right? Like, like that's what covenant meant, right? Like, that's what covenant meant. It's, that it's not about what you possess. It's who your God is. Who your partner is in the covenant, right? And, and so that was the idea that, but the other part about this is kind of hard. I covered the premarital couple. Covenant also means that you entitled that too. Right? And you don't get to be like, I have that. No, no, it's we have that. Right? And, and if you don't believe me, just, you know, talk to the state of Pennsylvania. You know, or talk to Sally May if you so dare, right? Like Sally May is going to be like, oh, I know you have this debt, but that partner of yours, we're just. Uh, you can't pay it to what's the right fly, right? No, right? Like, like in covenants, right? Like, you share protection, but you also share that. If we bring that to Scripture, and we bring that to our Jesus, and we go back to the Old Testament and bring that to Yahweh, we realize that when we fall short, God doesn't just forgive us, but God bows his ears. When we talk short, and we have all this indebtedness, right, of all the ways we fall short, and we beat ourselves up for it, again, our identity is in God. Our possessions are not what we have, but what God has, right? And our indebtedness, our brokenness, our weakness is made complete because God is whole. God is redeeming. We can stand on God even when we can't stand on ourselves. Another aspect of covenant is you would have the changing of names, right? I have friends who did this. They invented a last name. And I love them, so I make fun of them. That's how you know I love you, right? And I'll be like, this is cute and all, but what happens when your kids get married? Or your grandkids, like, are we just going to keep inventing names, you know? That's just me. I'm a little cynical, right? But they were doing covenant things. Because what would happen is you would come together, and they, as 
identity or the plan of life that you belong to, that you put your name together, right? And, and, and so, for example, you have this guy named Abram who gets the Bible of Yahweh and becomes Abraham. You have this lady named Sarah, right, who combines with Yahweh and Yahweh and becomes Sarah, right, or Sarah, right? You have these people who follow the way, and they believe in Jesus Christ, and they become what? Right? There's this idea that the names would, would combine. And speaking of Jesus Christ, another aspect of covenant was that you would make what they call blood vows, right? And I, I always picture this as like, you cut yourself, which I think it's a little weird, and then you stick it. But if you look at the ancient covenant, it wasn't the middle of the hand that they would strike. It was actually closer to the neck. And they would cut the wrist here, and they would cut the wrist here, and then they would put it in together. And the idea is that now we are sharing so you realize that even on the cross, when Jesus is spread out wide by death, and he has a wound here and a wound here, he's sharing his essence with us. Because in that blood, you're saying that I am now one with you. In that sense, it was sacrificed. And it wasn't just about death, right? Uh, what would happen if you from Genesis 15, for example, Abram just falling asleep. And as he falls asleep, uh, the two uh, uh, that we believe, some of us believe that the two instances that we see in Genesis 15 is not just God the Father Yahweh, but it's also Jesus. The Bible got to a Christ in the covenant with Abel, right? But anyway, you have two instances of God's presence and power that walks this line. Now, the line that they walk, the ancient, and you can see it in Christian sources, uh, Jewish sources, and even extra biblical sources, right? Was something called a sideways eight. And the idea of walking this line in between the animals of the sacrifice to the sideways eight was that their covenant would go on forever. You might know that sideways eight as what? The infinity symbol. Covenant is all around us. At the covenant, you would have a feast. And yes, you know, if they weren't poor like me, they might actually have food. You know, like a feast, feast. But most of them would have a, a piece of bread and a cup of wine. And, and sometimes they would let the blood from their, their ribs pour into the cup of wine, and they would drink that cup of wine. Because in the covenant, they were saying, you know, what we have chosen to agree to today is stronger than even family. In our context and culture, we say blood is thicker than water. What I learned this week meant that the babies, the water they turn in, that's what they were talking about. Now, here's that thing, right? But the answer to say blood is thicker than a mother's milk. And the idea is that your mother not only birthed you and gave you life, but in covenant, you would say, I am choosing to be more alive with my power than even my family. And for some of us, we don't understand that. But I tell you, for sisters and brothers the world over, who to follow God, to follow Jesus, is leaving family, they understand what this means. They understand that to enter into this relationship is to sometimes say, I am choosing Jesus, I am choosing God over even my family. That's what covenant meant. So Malachi's burden isn't just to say, hey, here's another thing we're doing wrong, but to say God is aligned with us. It's to say God has identified with us. God has protected us. God has been sharing in our, 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 our frailties and all the ways we fell short, but also making us whole. It's saying that, that God has given us a name and called us a people. Of God is sharing in our essence by actually saying, I am identifying with you as my people. God has blessed us. God has given us a shared future. Yet we keep following And the way this all short in the context of this passage is in the manuscript. If you have your Bible, turn to Malachi chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 10 to 16. Again, the prayer in the Malachi, the message of Malachi is, we have sinned, but we have broken covenant with God. Study of verse 10. We not all have one Father. We not one God created us. Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord, the, the sanctuary the Lord loves, by marrying women who worship a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offering or accepts them with pleasure from your hand. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. No, 
he is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. As not as one God made you, you belong to him in body and spirit. And what is the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard. And do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. Says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. What does it mean to be faithful? Not just in light of marriage, but in our relationship with one another. That's what Malachi said. Let's say, I found that God thank you so much. But you have chosen to have another pastor. You see the creator God who spoke the world into existence. Not only you entered into creation, the Lord you invited us into your identity. You've made us whole. We who are frail and broken and vulnerable and sinful, you've chosen to save and redeem us, to reconcile us, to bring us back to you. God, we can now share in your essence. The Lord, in covenant relationships, we can rely on your unconditional love. We can rely on your protection, your provision. We can rely on your goodness, your kindness. The Lord, we also enter into covenant knowing that you have asked and, and called us to, to live in a way that's honoring to you. So God, we think now on this passage. It's hard for us to even sit with and think through and, and talk about or, or even pray through. But in this passage, God, you're calling us back to one another. As a sign not only of covenant, but as a sign of belonging to you and belonging to each other. So God, help us to hear these words of Malachi. Not only to apply it to our lives, but to hold on to them, to be reminded that you are love, that you are spirit, and that you'll see us through. You only have to say amen. So in Malachi, God is going to be calling the people back to faithfulness in body and spirit. Yet this passage is about Judah's unfaithful husband. Again, Malachi is a layman. We believe that Malachi is not an exalted prophet. He didn't have a big ministry. He's definitely not from a mega church. I guess a mega god, right? Mega church god, right? He is someone who just shows up for a time with this message. And what I love about his courage is that, like, I would not be able to go before the people he's going before. He goes in with no standing but God. Talk about covenant and identifying with God. He goes in with no political power. He goes in with no spiritual power. He goes in with no necessary calling that they would have seen up until this point. Yet he challenges the nation as a whole and says, y'all, we have sinned and broken covenant with God. If that wasn't enough, he goes after the leaders. If that wasn't enough, he goes after the priests. And if that wasn't enough, he goes after the men of Israel. If you're following along, Every single power structure that was in place in the ancient culture that was there to not only worship and honor God, but to actually protect the people. So there's the idea here in covenant that not only are we reliant, or not only are we supposed to be faithful to God, but our faithfulness to God actually blesses the people around us. But the nation, the priests, the leaders, the husbands were not doing any of that. So even though God's people have, have seen the curse before of the covenant by not being faithful to God, and they have fallen into the hands of the Assyrians of the Babylonians, about a hundred years later after God leads them out of captivity, they grew indifferent to the things of God, and this apathy is now leaving them with broken covenant. So the, the, the dispute that God comes here comes to Malachi's voice. And it starts in verse 10 where Malachi reminds them, hey, y'all, don't we all have the same father? Now, some theologians will be like, well, we think he's talking about God here. But I actually think he's talking about Abraham. Because the very next phrase actually addresses God. And I think it's important that he starts with Abraham. Why? Because God made covenant with Abraham. That's where the covenant began for a lot of these people. They wouldn't have gone back to Adam because they're like, well, God created everything, right? With Abraham, God promised them to be a nation. And so he says, don't we have one father? And this father Abraham has birthed us all. And again, he's going to try to pull them back, not just the covenant, but to this idea that everything we do not only matters, it's either honoring to God or dishonoring to God. And if we're going to call ourselves Abraham's children, are we actually having the faith of our father Abraham? Are we actually living in a way that has the covenant honored among us? And don't we have one God? 
when he addresses Yahweh. I love the phrase, the mouth that addresses God as the creator of the covenants with God. That's beautiful. Because most of us who have the blessing of creating children, when we're in public, we like to sit at the children's table. Right? Like, we're like, you stay there, that's your world, right? How blessed are we that God didn't just say, I created earth, I put you there, you stay there, that's your world. That the creator of the universe comes down to the city table, if you will. That Jesus not just takes our skin, Jesus doesn't just live among us, but Jesus walks with us, speaks with us. And for Malachi, is when we look at God, let's remember that the creator of the universe has chosen to be in relationship with us. We have one Father, Abraham. We have one God, Yahweh, the Creator who covenants with us. We are one people. And what a message this universe to people who have placed as Israel and Samaria and Judah. To people who have split between those who were conquered by the Assyrians and those who were conquered by the Babylonians. To people who have split over generations, right? Like, well, that's just the old ways, right? We got new ways. We learn new things. So people who were. Every level seems to be united. I don't even know if that's the word I want to use. The people who seem to be separated, right? Because, no, 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 no. We have one people here. And not only are we a one people here, but we're also united with our ancestors of the past. One of the things I think we can learn from the global church, for example, is how not to just stand on the back of those who come before us, how to actually learn from them too. Here in the West, we make our faith so individualized, right? So much about what I believe, what God's done in my life, what I'm doing, that we forget to open our eyes and look around a little bit. Those who have come before. One thing I love about this church is that even before we are ever a multicultural, intentionally diverse church, there are people in this church who got on to heaven who prayed for this day. That is part of our legacy here. One thing I love about the future of this church is that there's children who've grown up in this church and that's the only church they've ever known. For those of us who've been in churches that have hurt us, for churches that fall short, and churches that have done harm to us, what a blessing that children will only have this church as the one they know. That this is going to be regular for them. What a blessing we're giving them. Not because we can give them, but because God has called us together. We are united with the ancestors who come before us. And it's a covenant just like we're in Christ. And because of Jesus, we get all the benefits. What Malachi is saying, this is before the time of Jesus, what Malachi is saying is that that same promise that God made to Abraham, he makes with us. That same promise that God made on Sinai with Moses, he made to us. That same promise that God made to David, he made to us. And the same obligations they have to uphold, we have to uphold too. Yet, even though we're united with God, united with Abraham, our Father, united as a people, we have been unfaithful to proclaim the testimony, the witness of those who've come before us. Think about that for a second. When we harm one another, we come against the testimony of all those who've come before us. The faithfulness of all those who've come before us. The unfaithfulness of harming one another destroys the unity we have, not just with the person we harm, not just with the people in our community, but with the saints who come before us. We have one God, one Father, one people in Israel now, be united, not with God, not to Abraham, or even with yourself, but you're united in your sin against God. Of all the things to be united in, so then God makes the case. And God says, Judah, you can see the words that different translations use about what Judah was doing by, by just owning the wives of their youth and, and, and finding new wives, right? These are some of the words that you hear. It was detestable. It was desecrated. It was dishonored. Again, this passage is about a group of men among the people of God who were literally saying, you know what? Bigger, better times. New I have moved on. I've outgrown them. This was a group of people who were saying that, you know what? Not only do I not want to be with you, but I want to be with someone in who's better for me. And in our 
thought that we could say that's okay. But then we realized that the people that were bringing it and why it was detestable and desecrating and dishonoring was this reason. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. And because there's nothing new under the sun, Israel has seen this before. There's stories in the Bible, Samson, we talked about a few months ago, right? There's stories in the Bible of people who are going outside the family of God to marry. And it wasn't because God was saying, I don't like this race, or I don't like these people. Because God was saying, if they're pulling you away from me, if they're worshiping, actively worshiping someone who's not me, that's not the best for you. And the argument Malachi makes here is that's not even the best for you. And especially your family. And so there's these decimal things. We've seen Israel in Numbers, for example, marry more by than God being like this. So they had done this before. And here's the other great idea. That the original reason for the final split between Israel and Judah is because Solomon had turned his heart for his life and worshipped for his God. If you look back and see where this was going, why this was wrong, but they did not. The thing I love about Malachi, Malachi reminds me of Peter a little bit. Peter, you don't have to worry about what he did. Right? Like, it's just like, we're going to attack Jesus. We're going to. You know, put them in jail in the restaurant. I'm going to cut off an ear or two. You know, like, you know, I might take my teeth, but you make it an ear, right? Like, like, you don't have to worry about what Peter says. And then Malachi gives his verdict here, right? And what's his verdict? He's like, man, may God remove all of y'all for the people that you've done. And I get that. You know, I get that. Like, Malachi's like, you still harm the women. You still harm the people God calls you to. You still harm everyone. How do you think God would just wipe all y'all out, right? Sounds like pathetic, right? That's Malachi's verdict. May God remove your law. In fact, I need y'all to stop crying. That's what he said. He's like, y'all need to stop filling God also with tears. Like, you're a terrible, evil people. Like, you're doing an evil thing. How dare you cry and say, God doesn't like my worship? God doesn't like what you've done to your life. That's Malachi's verdict. But I'll tell you what, I'm grateful. And Malachi's verdict. Though it makes me feel good about myself, that might make me feel righteous. I'm glad that he doesn't get the final word. Because if God removes all of us because of the sin that we do and keep on doing, I'm not sure any of us would be here this morning. That even though Malachi might be right, that what they were doing with evil and not right, and God should have wiped them all out, God did not. Instead, I think what a lot of preachers skip about this passage. It's the very end. It's that God promises to be a witness of the living God. Verse 16, he says it like this. The man who hates the divorce of his wife says, The Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one who took the fall. Says the Lord God Almighty, to be on guard and do not be unfaithful. That's interesting language that we miss sometimes in the English. But in the Hebrew, after Malachi gives his verdict, and God says in verse 14, it is because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. He hearkens back to Abraham, but Abraham is Hagar. Remember that story with Hagar. She was a, a handmaid. Without her consent, he said, in that context and culture, Sarah he says, you know what, I don't know about the promise of God starting to come, so you should go and, and lay with my husband. And then after she gets pregnant, she says, you know what, she don't like me, but she's pregnant, she thinks she has to come. And then that bone, right, is the resentment and hate and so much mistreatment. And this stuff when I preached on Hagar a couple years ago. You know how bad Hagar's mistreatment must have been? That she's on the verge of giving birth, that she would rather go into the desert than stay with Sarah. God chose the stronger people to be the birthers of children, right? Like, like God was smart, you know? Like, that's a good thing that God did. I like it, you know? But I can't imagine to be on the birth, on the birth, on the, 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 the,
giving birth. There it is, right? This is why God chose women, I'm telling you. On the verge of giving birth, but being so mistreated and hated, with such vows and said that you're like, you know what, I'm going to trust my brother more than I'm going to trust the one of Abraham. More than I'm going to trust Abraham who's just to protect me. I'm going to rather go into the desert by myself than trust them. Remember the end of that story? Is when the God shows up to her. He says, wow, God, you see me. And so I think that the, 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 the thing that we miss in this passage is that, yeah, God doesn't design the world. God wants us to be faithful. But I think what we miss is that God sees. If you're suffering, God sees. If you're in the place where you're going through the desert rather than stay with the Christians, God sees. If you're in a marriage where your husband or your wife is not honoring to you and you're in a place of pain and suffering, God sees. That's what Malachi is saying. He's not just saying, hey, I want divorces. I want you to be faithful. He's saying that, yes, no one else sees you. What a testimony. You know, one of the names we don't give to God enough is what Malachi gives in here is that God is a witness. When we talk about witnessing, we often talk about what we ought to do, about how we are witnesses. It's those who are suffering. Those who are ostracized, the those who are oppressed, the those who have no other way to know, please the Lord our God, our witness, who sees. And so, Malachi, but God ends here, not by waking up everyone, but by reminding them yet again of my covenant and so God ends this passage, or Malachi ends this passage. And what's beautiful about this is that now we get through all the, the, the really bad stuff, and we finally get the hope message. You know, before we get the hope, Malachi calls them back to God by saying, Listen, all of us ought to remember we belong to God in body and spirit. And that's not just means for us as Christians that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that you should protect it. Malachi also seems to believe that you ought to protect your mind too. Because quite often, the body is going to go after the mind has gone. So for Malachi, you didn't wake up and be like, you know what? I'm going to divorce my wife this morning. Your mind is going way before that. How do you protect your body? How do you honor God with your body? You protect your mind. And then there's something very interesting here because it says, what does God want? God wants offspring. And people at the big this, and they're just like, we don't know what this means, right? And then some people are like, well, this means children. But God wants you to have children, right? What's interesting is the Hebrew word that, that, that's used there, the first time it's used, isn't just, you know, go be fruitful and multiply, right? But it's this idea of bearing fruit. And the only fruit, or the fruit that we have as people who follow God, isn't just Children. And, God, and so what God is calling all of us to is to not just be faithful with our body, but protecting our mind, but are we bearing fruit? And that's how Malachi experiences from marriage and divorce. Is that what God wants from all of us? You know, Micah said, you know, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God, right? So to literally do the righteousness that God calls you to, to walk in peace with your neighbor, and to love the way God loves. Now that comes up as like, they're good fruit. They're good fruit. If you want to know how to honor God, they're good fruit. The last thing I want us to hold on to is simply this. When God covenants us, He promises to protect us. We have a God that doesn't harm us. We have a God who has room for our doubts, our fears, our insufficiencies, our vulnerabilities. When we covenant with one another, the work for us is to do good things, is to look at those we by seeing the husbands and the wives 
I speak to the brothers and the sisters, the friends and the cousins, the aunts and the uncles. I speak to all of us and say that we are all in covenant with one another. And what this passage is pushing us to is to a place where we look at our relationships and say, Am I causing good and not harm? It's pushing us to get to a point where we're saying, Am I building up or tearing down? It is to push us to a point of saying that if we are in covenant not just with God, but with one another, are we actually loving the way God loves? And if this, our last breath, would like to for the people who know us, for the people who walk with us, the people who even choose to love us, will they know that we have given our lives to their good food, and that the good food is loving the way God has loved us. I think this passage is hard because we make decisions in life. We make decisions in our marriages. We make these choices. I want us to hold both these truths in mind. And that's God's love. That's the call of faith. And that's God loves us. And also calls us to love one another. And wherever we are, we can come back to God. And that's today, yesterday, we can be present now. Maybe you've fallen short. Maybe you've sinned greatly among one another or to one another. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. And God reminds us, and I'm a witness not only to the covenant, but I'm the creator of the covenant with you. Today is the day that we come back home. I'd like to invite up our worship team. We're going to close on singing. Um, a song that's very familiar to us about building our foundation on Jesus. But as we sing this song, I, I want to also give space to those of us who, who are, are struggling because we've hurt and because we've been hurt. Those of us who are struggling because we feel like no one sees my actual suffering. What I'm actually going through, no one understands. I want to say to you this morning that the God who sees you is the God who's with you. That the God who loves you is the God who protects you. And for all of us, may our firm foundation be strong not only in Jesus, may we be a people who truly live to love and protect one another and not harm and destroy one another. Let's stand with you today. We could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever sing. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We could ever sing. Jesus, the name of all that he ever made. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, live for you, live for you. Thank you.